Hey, it's Andrew here, and in this episode, I share the mic with Nier Eyal, author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Listen in as Nier explains the hook model, the role of frequency, and why frequency is the number one reason your product is not going to become a habit. We also touch on the ethical way to build habit-forming products and his new book, Indistractable. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Nia, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you, Andrew. So good to be here. Yeah, uh, I think uh, your book is uh, hooked. It's just definitely been one of the top books I recommend to anyone building products and services. And uh, it's like one thing that's always stuck. I've actually got it on my shelf behind me here, sitting on the bookshelf. I've read it two, three times and keep going over it. Maybe you just want to start a little bit about like uh, letting us know about yourself and uh, how you came about writing the book hooked. And then maybe we can dive into some of uh, the tips and strategies you recommend there. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your uh, your reading of the book, and I'm so glad you found it helpful over the years. So the uh, the idea behind Hooked uh, came out of my experience in the advertising and gaming uh, technology business. I, I started two tech companies, and uh, at the intersection of my last company, between the intersection of gaming and advertising, I saw a lot of companies come and go. Uh, this was back in 2007, 2008. This was, you know, the iPhone had just come out. The Apple App Store wasn't even out yet. Uh, apps back then were not, you know, today when you say apps, everybody thinks smartphone apps. Apps back then meant Facebook apps. And uh, I got started in that world back when people were like throwing sheep at each other, if you remember that, those days. And we saw these, these different apps and companies kind of, you know, grow to massive sizes, unprecedented size in, in an unprecedented speed. And I wanted to understand how these companies did it. I wanted to understand, you know, the deeper psychology behind how these companies were getting so big so quickly. And, you know, I, I kind of had this front row seat. I was at Stanford at the time and I had these, the front row seat to the, the rise of uh, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Twitter. And uh, I really wanted to understand how these companies do it. And I, I had this hypothesis after my last company was acquired. Uh, I had this hypothesis that the, the companies that would make it in the future, what I was seeing, uh, you know, my, my, my hypothesis was that the companies that would really make it in the future are the ones that would build consumer habits, that customer retention and engagement is really the defining characteristic, the business characteristic of, of our age today. And so uh, I really want to understand how to do that. How do you build the kind of products that, that create habits? And the reason I had this epiphany 
was uh, I thought I would start another company and I want to understand what kind of company should I start. And so I want to understand, okay, I know I want to build a company that builds a habit. How do you build a habit forming product? And I didn't see any book like that. Uh, the, the reason I, I had such a, a strong conviction about that hypothesis was that I could see that the interface was shrinking, meaning when we went from desktop to laptops to mobile devices and now to wearable devices like smartwatches, and now most recently to Audible-type interfaces like uh, the Amazon Echo or Microsoft Cortana or Google Home, exactly. Now there is no more screen interface. And what that means is that as the interface shrank and eventually disappeared, habits became more important. Meaning if you're not on the home screen of someone's phone, how do they see you? How do they know you exist? Uh, if you're on somebody's smartwatch, right? If you're some little complication on their smartwatch or if you're on the Amazon Echo or Google Home, if they don't remember to ask for you, you might as well not exist. So as the interface shrank, habits became even more important because there just isn't the room to externally trigger people with the you know, notifications and messages and calls to action. So habits matter even more in this age of shrinking ubiquitous technology. Uh, and I didn't find a book that taught people how to do that. I read uh, Charles Duhigg's Power of Habit, which I thought was fantastic, but it wasn't written for product managers. I wanted something that was written for people who build products because I know how hard it is to build the kind of product that actually changes people's behavior, but I didn't find a book that taught me how to do that. So I spent uh, about two years researching and writing. I started publishing on my blog what I was learning. And frankly, I was just writing it for myself. I wasn't looking for an audience. Uh, but then people started reading it. And I started getting some great feedback. And one of my uh, professors from business school called me and said, look, I really like your stuff. What if we taught a class together? So we put together this class on behavioral design. I taught for many years at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Then I taught at the design school at Stanford. Then I published Hooked. Uh, and, th and that book did, did phenomenally well. Thank thankfully, I'm so glad that it, it had an impact. And uh, yeah, the rest, the rest is history. And now, I'm, now I teach and consult. I'm writing another book, which we can talk about later, called Indistractable. So that's what brings me here today. Nice. Yeah, like it definitely is an amazing book. And I was actually thinking about it the other day, uh, that it doesn't only specifically apply to products, the concepts, and obviously because you've taken them from basic psychology, but I had like even just looking at a simple concept like surfing, and I was trying to think like, why have I become like so interested and engaged in surfing? And then I was thinking about like the different the hook model and going through sort of um, the reward and talking about like variable rewards. You'll go out and some days you don't know if it's good or if it's bad, and then you just put more time and practice in the investment. And then as you get better, it just becomes more and more exciting and you start to build these habits. So, Absolutely. Um, no, that's, that's true. And that's a huge compliment because I think it's, you know, when I, when I figured out this hook model and I can walk everybody through the four steps, but the, when I figured it out, you're right, you start seeing it everywhere uh, because it's not something that only appears in tech products. It's something that appears in anything that's engaging and habit forming online or offline. And so you're right. You actually do start seeing the world a little different and start saying, Oh, I see what you're doing there. That's, that's part of the hook model. <laughs> exactly. So maybe you want to talk us through the hook model a little bit and uh, let us know how it works. Sure, absolutely. So um, let's start with this. So, so the hook model basically uh, answers this question in a product development context. It, it, it's, a, it's a tool to help you answer what do we build next? And this is a problem that at both tech companies that I helped start, uh, we constantly had this question. If you're an adherent to lean startup methodologies, this is a constant problem. What do we build next? Do we build what the loudest customer says we should build? Do we build what uh, the highest paid person in the room says we should build? God forbid, do we build what the investors think we should build? What do we build next? And so what typically happens in most companies, it's whatever the highest paid person's opinion, right? The hippo in the room, the high pay, highest paid person's opinion. 
which is frankly kind of a crappy way to decide what to build next. So what I wanted to offer to the product design community is a framework, a model that we can turn to and say, hey, look, if growth, I'm sorry, if engagement and retention is a problem, how do we diagnose what's wrong with our product in order to fix it? Right now, it's a big guessing game. So instead of just guessing, instead of just you know saying, hey, boss, what do you think we should do? Or even talking to customers, frankly. I mean, we have to talk to customers, but many times we just do what the loudest customer says we should do. And that's not always a, a very good methodology. What I propose is that we use this you know, 50, 60-year-old research into consumer psychology to help guide our decision-making. So I put together a lot of very well-established research in the field into a very simple but not simplistic model. And that model goes like this that embedded into the user experience of any habit-forming product is a hook. The definition of a hook is an experience designed to connect the user's problem with the customer's habit, with the customer, let me start over, connecting the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. Let me say that again, connecting the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. And every hook has these four fundamental steps. The first step is called the trigger, and there are two types of trigger. Uh, The first type of trigger is called the external trigger, which is something in our environment that tells us what to do next. It's a ping, a ding, a ring, a notification, something that tells you what to do next with some kind of information in your environment. The next step is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. So it's a scroll on Pinterest. It's a search on Google. It's pushing the play button on YouTube. These incredibly simple, discrete actions done in anticipation of an immediate reward. Then comes the variable reward phase, which we were just talking about earlier. These variable rewards tend to be uh, t- utilize the Skinnerian uh, principle of, of, of intermittent reinforcement, that when we have variability and mystery, Uh, around an experience, it becomes more engaging and therefore more habit forming. And this isn't something that has been recently invented. This has been observed for ages. I mean, it's what makes slot machines uh, engrossing, if not all out addictive to some people. That's a variable reward. We think about what makes uh, watching sports on TV so engaging, variable rewards. What makes a movie fun, variable rewards. What makes love and romance interesting, variable rewards. All of these things, the uncertainty, the unpredictableness, the uh, mystery of an experience is a big part, is the engine of of something like the hook model and behind all of these habit-forming products. And then finally, the last step of the hook is called the investment phase. And the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of some kind of future benefit. And they do this in two ways. Number one, they load the next trigger. So something that they do that brings themselves back. Uh, for example, if you send someone a message on Slack or WhatsApp, you're loading the next trigger because you're likely to get a reply. That's called loading the next trigger. Then you're sent through the hook once again when you get that external trigger of someone replying. The second way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook is that they store value, something that the user does that makes the product better and better with use. So uh, giving the company data content, followers, reputation, any one of these actions uh, increase the value of the product through this principle of stored value and make it sticky, make it a little hard to leave the product because you've invested so much into it. The net result of these four steps of the hook is that eventually through successive passes of these hooks, external trigger, action, reward, investment, 
eventually you no longer need the external trigger. You remember I talked earlier about the two types of triggers. The second type of trigger is called the internal trigger, which is actually where we start designing a habit-forming product in the first place. The internal trigger, unlike an external trigger, which is something in our environment that tells us what to do next, the internal trigger is something that cues the user to action from within their own heads. So it typically is in the form of a negative emotion. When we're feeling bored, we check YouTube or Reddit. When we're lonely, we look at Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. It's connecting your product to a negative emotion, to a pain point. In fact, the only reason that human beings do anything is to escape discomfort. And so the goal of a habit-forming product is to, is to connect the experience of feeling that negative emotion to the automatic use of that product to relieve that discomfort. You're never creating pain, right? That's sadistic. That's unethical. What you're doing is finding that pain and discomfort in the user's life and connecting your product's use to that discomfort so that automatically, out of habit, they're using a product or service with little or no conscious thought. Interesting. Like you mentioned something as well at the very beginning, obviously the hook model is all about connecting a user's uh, problem with your solution in enough frequency to establish a habit. Um, mm-hmm. at, at what point does frequency, uh, like how big a role does frequency play in, the, in establishing habits and what products are suitable to forming habits? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So, the, so in frequency, is the number one reason that I tell a company, sorry, your product is not going to become a habit. And let me be very clear. Not every product has to be a habit forming in order to be a successful product or successful company. Lots of businesses are not habit forming. And this typically happens because they're not used frequently enough. So for example, uh, home insurance, right? You don't use home insurance out of habit. You buy it, you sit on it, and God forbid you should ever have to use it. It's not something you want to use. You just pay your bill every year, and it's fine. You don't use it frequently. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that kind of business. The only thing is if you have a product that does not form a habit, then you need to find some kind of other uh, barrier to entry. Because what happens with products that aren't habit forming, unless there's some kind of competitive moat, you're always competing on price and features and price and features and price and features, right? So, you know, Geico comes out and says, uh, buy Geico home insurance or work car insurance, and we'll save you 15% in 15 minutes. And then their competitor comes out and says, oh, yeah, we'll save you 20% in 12 minutes. So they're always fighting on price and features. A habit-forming product has this amazing competitive advantage because it's used with little or no conscious thought that people don't consider whether a better product or service is there even, right? So think about Google. You know, if I pull you, I do these talks in front of large audiences, and I'll ask 1,000 people, hey, raise your hand if you've used Google in the past 24 hours, and almost every hand in the room will shoot up. And then I say, well, who's you Bing, the number two search engine? And, you know, maybe one or two former Microsoft employees will raise their hand. <laughs> and, and why is that? Is it because Google has such a better product or service? Are they just these geniuses have just, you know, built a better algorithm? No, it's rubbish. In fact, people can't tell the difference between the two. Third-party studies have found you can't tell the difference between the two when you strip out the branding. It's a 50-50 preference split. But we yeah. Google stuff purely out of habit. We don't actually ask ourselves, hmm, before I Google this, I wonder, is there a better search engine available? We just do it with little or no conscious thought out of habit. So if you don't build a habit, you're constantly at the mercy of a competitor based on fighting for price and features, uh, which is not the worst thing in the world, but it's, it, it means you have to fight a lot harder than a product that, that has built a habit. So uh, the criteria for building this habit is a frequency test. Uh, Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, calls it the toothbrush test. 
that he doesn't want to work on any product that is not used with the same frequency of a toothbrush, meaning twice a day. Now, I'm a little bit less, I'm not quite that stringent. I think the line of demarcation is about a week's time. Uh, and this doesn't matter if you're an enterprise web or consumer web, offline, online, doesn't matter. In order for a product to form a habit, it has to be used within a week's time or less, or it's almost impossible. There are some rare exceptions, and we can talk about what those exceptions are. But almost without exception, if the product is not used within a week's time or less, it's almost impossible to form a habit. Now, that doesn't mean that it needs, you need to necessarily buy with that product, right? So buying is almost never the habit. Uh, particularly in e-commerce. I get a lot of people who I, I, I consult for in the e-commerce space and they want to make buying from the site a habit. And that's a huge mistake because you know they're so focused on getting people to check out and they forget about the opportunity to, to help people check in, right? It, it doesn't, it, it's almost never going to be the purchase that is part of the habit because buying something requires a lot of conscious thought. It's the antithesis of a habit. What we want to do is figure out ways to, for people to check in, to engage with our product frequently enough and the result of that engagement is, guess what? Eventual monetization. So monetization is a result of engagement, not the other way around. I think a very good story about this was actually the case of Zillow and transitioning to different use cases. So obviously Zillow is a house uh, you can go and find and buy a house, uh, which you typically don't do every day and not every month or even every year. So what they ended up doing was taking another thing that you might be a lot more interested in is checking the valuation of the house that you've just bought right. and associated with that. So trying to build a habit and bring people to check out the valuation. So next time they go to buy a house, it's thinking, okay, like I'm going to go to Zillow because that's the name I remember. That's the name I've been using. Exactly. exactly. And to some degree, frankly, Zillow uh, relies upon Google's habit, right? So if you've never used Zillow before, the onboarding strategy, uh, or if you rent from place to place, the onboarding strategy is really, you know, Google, unfortunately, they have so much power, Google has so much power in that habit of when I need anything, I Google it, that they're, they're piggybacking off of Google's habit and hoping they'll be one of the top few results. But you're absolutely right. After you buy the house, now you've invested, right? They ask you put in your name, claim your property, and we'll send you updates. Well, what is that? That's the investment that loads the next trigger so that, hey, when, if your property goes up in value, somebody wants to offer you a, a bidding price, it goes down in value, whatever, they have a reason to reach out to you so that when you think about selling your home, who you're going to go to. Exactly. So we spoke a little bit about triggers and internal, like diving into actions a little bit. And I think one of the things that stood out, and uh, I think I, I've heard it a few different places. One was in your book, and I think Anthony Robbins talks about it quite a bit, is that people do things for one of two reasons. Uh, and it's either to seek pleasure or to avoid pain. Uh, yeah. So maybe that's, you want to talk a little bit about the driver's right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me talk about it a little bit because I actually used to believe that too. In fact, everybody used to believe that. It's called. It, it's not Tony Robbins who invented that. It's Freud. Yeah. Uh, okay. Freud invented. It's called the pleasure principle that all human behavior is motivated by the desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. It's not exactly right. It's shorthand. In fact, what we see, uh, neurologically speaking, is that it's pain all the way down. Oh, yeah. And everything we do. Every product we buy, every action we take fundamentally is to escape discomfort. It's just pain all the way down. In fact, even the desire for pleasure is in fact uncomfortable, right? When we think about, you know, think about all the love songs that have been written about how love hurts, right? It's really about this discomfort, this pain that we're seeking to escape by getting what we want. And, and what this reinforces, you know, I get this question a lot of, you know, why, why do we only look for internal triggers that are painful emotions? Don't people, aren't people motivated by the desire to share or to, you know, do something nice? Uh, well, not 
really. Technically, that's not exactly true. And I don't want product managers to go look for these times when people are not in pain because what they tend to do is piss people off and bug them too much. Uh, I'll give you a good anecdote to illustrate the point. I was on a transcon flight uh, and I was sitting in the aisle and there was this guy on the other aisle seat across from me who was asleep, right? Clearly passed out. Uh, he had his, his blanket up to his neck. He had a big pillow there, clearly passed out. The flight attendant comes by and she says, sir, this guy's sleeping, right? She, she doesn't wake him up. So she says it again. She says, sir, and he still doesn't wake up. And now people are kind of looking around like, why is this flight attendant bothering this guy? And so she says it a third time and she almost shouts. She says, sir. And he wakes up. He's like, whoa, what is it? What is it? And she says, sir, what would you like to drink? And this is a, a great example, right? People laugh at that story. Oh, that's so mean to do. Why did she oh, do it's that? It's happened to me as well before. That's so And guess what? We as product designers do this to people all the time. We bother them when they're not in pain. And that is wrong. We need to stop doing that. And how do we do it? We send them pings and dings and rings and notifications on our schedule instead of their schedule. Did this guy want a drink? Yes, when he was thirsty, not when he was sleeping. So we have to remember this rule. The, 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 the difference between an external trigger that feels like spam and one that feels like magic is one word. And that one word is context. We have got to start being smarter about how we send these external triggers. We have to think about the context with which our users are using our product. And that's why it all starts from this internal trigger, being able to articulate what is that internal trigger that occurs frequently enough that we want to attach our products used to? And that's when you send the external trigger, not when whatever you, you know, whenever you feel like it. So what would some of those internal triggers look like? Uh, and let maybe take a SaaS application, uh, any random SaaS application. What would like a typical trigger look like? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I'll think of any negative emotional state, boredom, uncertainty, fatigue, discomfort, uh, uh, loneliness, uh, un- any of these, are, you know, stress, any of these things can be internal triggers. So when you think about, you know, a SaaS type application, um, I don't know, take, take your pick. If, if it's uh, Slack, for example, well, Slack is using this internal trigger of uncertainty about what's going on today in my office. It just replaced the water cooler conversation for a lot of folks, right? So it's this, it's this FOMO, this fear. Fear is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. Uh, you know, if you think of any product or service, fundamentally, if you dig deep enough, it is always used because of some negative emotional state. Okay. Um, and then talking as well, like how do frequency and triggers align with one another? And we talked about like this constant dinging uh, going through. How should one go about aligning their notifications or their triggers uh, with the frequency of use of their product? Yeah. So it's really about uh, understanding when your customer feels that internal trigger, right? What's the uncomfortable emotional state that they feel with the frequency of at least a week's time or less? Uh, and then figuring out when in their day do they feel that internal trigger. And some of this is just some common sense type stuff, right? But companies never do it, right? Almost never do it. They never sit down and actually, you know, I, I learned this technique from Jack Dorsey. He talked about this in, in a talk he gave at Stanford about writing a user narrative. And he's done this at Square. He's done this at Twitter. The idea is you write this storyline of, okay, here's our customer. Here's their typical day. Here's when they feel the internal trigger. And here's when they would use our product to scratch that itch. And it reads just like a play. And everybody in the company understands that story. It's a very, very powerful technique. But most companies don't even take the time 
to understand that story, right? Maybe they'll do a story mapping, but that's after the, pro- the person is already in the product. What you need to do is opposed to just doing the user flow, which is important, is what happens before the user got to the product? What was the internal trigger that they felt, right? If it's a SaaS type product and it's, you know, let's say it's uh, uh, Trello, for example. Well, Trello solves this problem of not knowing what to do. This pain, you know that feeling of you sit down at your desk and say, man, what's the most important thing I need to do right now, right? I don't know. That feels uncomfortable. That's uncertainty. And so the solution is open up Trello and ah, okay, that's the thing that I got to do today. So that, you know, sitting, understanding how, what is in your user's life, what's the routine, what are the steps they take in their day that they feel this negative emotion. And then that's where you insert the use of your product and everything is built based on solving that pain point. So for example, the variable reward phase, a lot of companies, you know, got into gamification over the past few years and gamification typically is, is crap because what tends to happen is not, not that it's always bad, but it tends to be misused because people say, oh, gamification, I got it. I'll just add points and badges and then people want to use my stuff. Well, that almost never works because it's not aligned with the internal trigger. So if the internal trigger is boredom, well, then points and badges and leaderboards are great because they're fun. They're entertaining. But what if I'm not feeling boredom? What if I'm feeling uncertainty, workplace stress, uh, fatigue, whatever it might be? You've got to figure out how to solve that internal trigger or the reward won't be rewarding. Yeah. Uh, And on that as well, like rewards, uh, I think is definitely another sort of thing that we come up and you touched on as well. Uh, And for me as well, I've noticed like this is one of those big sort of things is the variable reward concept. And you touched a little bit on slot machines earlier, which I want to touch on ethical products going forward, but let's just stick to rewards quickly for now. Uh, how do people go about understanding like what sort of rewards should be put into their products and how like can they reward their users in a variable fashion? Yeah, so it really has to be about what we just talked about, about internal triggers, about first and foremost understanding what is that user's itch. There has to be a connection between the variable reward and the internal trigger. If you don't do that, your product won't be used habitually because remember the whole point is to create this connection in the user's mind between what pain I feel and what solves that problem, what alleviates that pain, what scratches that itch. So if you don't closely understand that internal trigger, how could you possibly figure out what the variable reward should be? Now, some products want to insert variability, right? So when you're uh, scrolling Facebook or Slack or you know any number of other services, there's this variability around what you might find when you scroll one of these products, right? There's uncertainty. What do people say? What do they comment on? How many likes does something get? a lot of variability there. But some products don't want to necessarily insert variability. They want to give the user greater agency and control over something that's already variable. So think about a SaaS product, for example, uh, that tracks your marketing spend, for example, uh, or you know any number of other dashboard type interfaces. Well, those are variable rewards, right? Uh, you know, There's the, the, the charts going up and down and the uncertainty of, oh, is what I'm doing working? All of those things, I have to check in every day to see how uh, how I'm doing, how my, my efforts are progressing. So those are variable rewards. And what these products are doing is they're giving the user greater agency and control over something that's already variable. It's already hard to control. And they're doing it through these display, the interface of a chart, a graph, a, something that's changing from day to day. 
Yeah, I think the graphs is actually a very good one to talk about the next thing, which is sort of the, the stored value aspect uh, and the investment. I, I think this yeah. is one of the bigger things for me personally that makes products sticky, as you say, is like over time people have this personal investment in a product or service and make it difficult. So having data, historical data is definitely one of those things. Like what is the importance and how do you see like the stored value coming into uh, the investment yeah. and the overall hook model? So the investment phase is arguably the most important of the four steps of the hook, because this is what's really different in this day and age. This is where an interactive product uh, has, uh, has a huge competitive advantage, a product that gets better with use. And, and this continues this long line from the, from the industrial revolution till today of the, the cycle time between a, a customer recognizing a need and a product adapting to that product's need that has accelerated. And I, I call this concept contingency. And the idea is that, that products are getting better and faster at changing their specifications based on the user's needs. And the users, in return, are changing how they use a product to meet the product specifications. So the, it's a two-sided uh, change. And this happens because of investment. I mean, if you think about you know, Henry Ford, he is quoted with saying, I don't know if he actually said it, maybe it was misattributed, but he's famous for saying, uh, you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black. And so why did he say that? Well, because it would have been really hard for him to retool his production line to make other colors. Well, then, you know, industry caught up, and now you can have cars in all sorts of colors, but it still takes time for a product to modify, right? It's, uh, cars have model years, and it takes them a long time to make the product better and better. Well, today, if you think about these world-changing companies, the most valuable companies in the world, like Facebook and uh, Google and Amazon and, you know, these companies, Apple, these companies have made products, each and every one of them, that change in real time based on your data. So you are co-creating the platform with the company, right? So when you add data, like who you're, you know, who, what, interest, what you're interested in, every time you search for something on Google, every time you click a video on YouTube, every time you friend somebody on Facebook, you are co-creating the experience based on the data you give these companies because they're making it better for you next time you engage with the product. And they spend a lot of time and effort perfecting their algorithms to give you what they hope you will like. Now, they're not, not always right, and they're still in you know, the nascent baby uh, stages of using these, this data. But this is something that almost no small business does. And I think what we'll see over the next few years is a de democratization of this technique. Uh, all sorts of products will improve with use. They will remember the data you've given them. If you think about the vast majority of products out there, kind of one size fits all. Well, what we're going to see is increasing personalization based on the data you give these companies. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And it's a trend that's growing more and more in popularity. Uh, on the note of, of data, uh, I think that's definitely a touchy subject as well for a lot of people with the amount of data that we're sharing now online. Uh, and you touched as well earlier on about um, a product like the casino and slot machines. And how do you see like the hook model and uh, the habit forming products as, as a, like a methodology when it comes yeah. to ethics and building products that uh, people are using for good as opposed to like personal gain or for capital gains? Yeah. So um, I thought about this topic a lot. I actually put in my book hooked. I have a, a section called the morality of manipulation. Uh, and then I've, I've worked on this question since then as well. Um, and so, you know, what, what I, I was looking for was a test that we can use when we're, when we're in a situation with our colleagues, our boss, and somebody wants to use a tactic that maybe people aren't very, you know, into or they think might be unethical. 
uh, how do you raise your hand and say, mm, I'm not so sure about this technique? You know, there's these, there's these design patterns called dark patterns uh, that, that all share a common trait, and that is that they're coercive. And so I think this is how we decide uh, whether a tactic is ethical or unethical in the particular application of the technique. Because remember, the same exact technique that can be you know, shady and ethical in one respect can be perfectly great in another. I'll give you an example. Uh, some tech critics like to bemoan Snapchat. They use this technique of streaks. Uh, this is a known behavioral design technique where the idea is that you know, you, you, if you don't do a certain behavior, if you don't write somebody back on Snapchat every day, then you can't, you'll, you'll break the chain. And so those streaks stop. Well, you know, people say, oh, this is terrible. It's a psychological manipulation. Yeah, but the same technique was used way years earlier by Duolingo to help people learn a new language. So it's never the technique. It's the application of the technique. And the dividing line is whether the user regrets the behavior. Is the behavior persuasive in which it's trying to help people do something they want to do that they won't regret, that they appreciate? Or is it something that coerces them into doing something they later regret, they wish they hadn't? done. And so that's really the dividing line behind using these techniques is would the user regret using this product? So I don't believe, I don't like Google's line of don't be evil. What the hell, you know, evil is, is such a subjective term. Subjective. Uh, the, the golden rule doesn't work because, you know, do unto others as you would do have them do unto you. That doesn't really work because that makes you the final arbiter of what people need, which is kind of not right either. Uh, uh, disclosure doesn't work because then we get what we have today where we just put everything we don't want people to know in the terms of service and then say, well, we told you, why, why didn't you read the terms of service? None of those tactics are the right ethical bar. I think we need a higher ethical bar of the regret test. Like literally, if there's a potentially shady tactic, we should call people into a room, which we as product designers do all the time. It's called user testing. You call people into a room and you have them go through your user flow. And you, the question you need to ask yourself is, would the user want to do what we've designed for them to do, knowing everything we know? And so this directly applies to the use of data and the unethical use of data, because what we find in every single incidence where people get pissed off about uh, data being used inappropriately is that they regret the way the data was used. All of these could have been tested, right? Facebook could have said, you know what? I'm not really sure people will regret uh, if we did this to them. Well, why don't we just call in 10 people and ask them? It's not that hard to do. We say, well, companies don't have that incentive. Bullshit they do, because if Facebook had done that stuff, they wouldn't have the backlash they have today. People aren't stupid. I mean, there's a mass exodus from Facebook today, and it will, it will only continue. And it's a big problem for Facebook, uh, for Facebook proper. Now, they're gaining people on Instagram because Instagram doesn't do a lot of the stuff that, that shady Facebook proper did, even though it's the same company. Um, but this regret test can be used at any size organization, and it's, it's very cheap to do such a test. And it has this chilling effect that if you raise your hand and say, hey, you know, boss, we should really do a regret test on this because I'm not sure people would appreciate it if we did that to them. That has a chilling effect. 90% of the time, you won't have to do the regret test because people will be so scared of doing it that they won't implement the technique. Uh, and in this day and age, look, you know, you can only trick people so many times before they say, hey, this, this company sucks, right? I'm not happy with this company. Not only do they not do business with you anymore, they're going to tell all their friends on social media to not do business with your company anymore. So that's why it's in the business's interest to do these regret tests anytime that there's this worry of, hey, is this an ethical tactic to use? Yeah, and I think though you've hit the nail on the head though, is if you're actually asking the question, you probably already know the answer. That's mm -hmm. also part of it, right? And, and it's not something, and it's, I'm so thankful that now people are asking this question, but I think it needs to be framed properly because you know, if we use Google's test of don't be evil, 
eh, you can always kind of shoehorn your ethical standards on the user. It's, eh, it's kind of okay. It's not evil. Um, but if you use the regret test of would someone regret doing what we designed for them to do, that is eminently testable, right? We can just ask people and, and find out. Yeah. So maybe we could just finish up then uh, by you touched on the beginning as well, a little bit about the next book that's coming out. Uh, why have you decided to write this now? I think it falls a little bit in line as well with what you're talking about. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So a question I, I frequently got uh, when I was teaching folks about how to build habit forming products. And just to be clear, I didn't write hooked for Facebook and Google, you know, the, the gaming companies, they already knew these techniques. They're the companies that I use as examples so that the rest of us, I, I didn't think it was fair that just those companies knew these techniques. I want everybody out there who's building habits to improve people's lives, uh, companies that help people save money and exercise more and be more productive at work. This is where we can use habits for good. All sorts of companies can use these techniques. So I didn't write the book for Facebook and Twitter and Google. They already knew these techniques. I wrote it for everybody else. But the question I constantly got asked is, okay, well, how do I get unhooked, right? I'm seeing that my employees are not as productive as they could be. I see that my kids are using technology in a way that's uh, distracting. And, and, you know, myself, my own story, I struggled at one point, even though I knew how these products work, I struggled with distraction. So my next book is called Indistractable, and it answers this age-old question of why don't we do the things we know we should do? Uh, That, you know, self-help books each promise you the secret to do to living the life you want. And you know what the fact is? We all know. We all know. If you want to lose weight, exercise more and eat less. Pretty much, right? With few exceptions, that's three. If you want to be more productive at work, you got to do the work. If you want to have better relationships with your friends and family, you have to be present for your family. There is no secret. But why don't we do the things we know we need to do? And so that's really the question of the book. And, and it's, it's, a lot of it is about technological distraction, but it's a bigger topic than that. Because what I found in my five years of research working on this book is that distraction starts from within. So the book really starts with how do we understand what are we exactly escaping from, right? If we see ourselves using the, our iPhone at the dinner table because we can't stand to be with our family, it's not the iPhone that's doing it to us. There's something else going on. And so that's really the exploration of the book. It's about these deeper internal triggers that drive us to behave in ways we don't, we don't always like unless we understand the ways to not get distracted. So that's why I call it the skill of the century because I think you know, if you're looking for distraction, it's going to be easier and easier to find it. And so my hope is to give people the, the skills and the tools to stop distraction so that they can do what they really want to do in life. I think that's a perfect uh, segue to end this uh, show. And obviously, I think everybody listening to this really looking to try and tackle churn and increase your attention at their business. So it can help you by uh, stopping you from being distracted with the show and getting back to work and making things happen. Yeah, thanks <laughs> so much for having us today. It was really, My really pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank really you. It. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.